You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tena koto katoa. Ko Jessica Hopkins toku ingoa. No mai haere mai ki te wire mō tēnera. Kia ora and welcome back to The Wire for Rahina, Monday the 21st of Feb. I am your host, Jessica, and I'm joined by producers uh, Charlie and Sam, who have put together some fantastic pieces for you today. This week, I'll be speaking to Ukrainian resident Victoria, who lives in Lviv, which was just recently um, attacked by Russia last night. So we'll be talking a little bit about what it looked like in Lviv prior to that attack when I was able to speak to her. Charlie and Sam are also bringing us um, a range of pieces today. Nina Santos, campaign spokesperson for Mind the Gap, uh, is going to be discussing their new pay gap registry. Dr. Anna Brooks from the University of Auckland discusses the impact of long COVID and Chloe Wallard and Shane Henderson from Auckland City Council are going to be discussing property re-evaluations and how this will affect the annual budget. Um, stay tuned for all this and more. Hia ha o fakaro. We would also love to hear your thoughts on any of our pieces today. So um, give me a call or a text in the studio. You can text me on 5395 or give me a call on, in the studio on 309 3879 and catch all of our stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. The Wire. Uh, I don't know, and, and frankly, the whole thing gives me the heebie jeebies. The Wire. The Mind the Gap campaign has launched Aotearoa's first pay gap registry. In May 2021, the pay gap in Aotearoa was 9.09%, and Māori received only 82% of the average Pākehā's hourly pay wage. On the Mind the Gap website, it says that publishing pay gaps helps companies and employers trust each other, and that pay reporting can help narrow and close pay gaps. Mind the Gap campaign spokesperson Nina Santos spoke with me about the registry, and I started by asking her to explain how the registry works. Last Tuesday on International Women's Day, Mind the Gap launched New Zealand's first public pay gap registry. So it's essentially a place and a website which shows 160 plus of New Zealand's larger employers. So you can see the business names, the name of the board chair and CEO, and whether or not the organization currently reports their pay gaps for gender, Maori, and Pacifica peoples. So this is really quite historic. It's the first of its kind in our country, mainly because pay gaps are kept in secret. So traditionally, no one wants to reveal this number because I don't think it's very good. PR. <laughs> but it's really important that we shed light on the gaps because only transparency will really be the key to addressing them. As long as we hide them and kind of keep our cards close to our chest, we can't really move forward and put steps in place to address the gaps. So yeah, that's what the pay gap registry is. It's essentially a showcase of which organizations are leading in this space and also which organiz- organizations are missing in action. So are these sort of big organizations and big companies that are signing up? Yes. So um, we invited 160 plus of um, New Zealand's large employers to report on the registry. So over the last couple of months, since um, October 2021, we've been working with these businesses directly. 
to kind of get them on the journey and over the line to report um, their pay gaps publicly. But we've also been working with a lot of representative bodies like Business NZ and Champions for Change, Gender Tech, Institute of Directors, so whole range. So over 160 employers are there, and at the moment, 50 employers are publicly reporting their gender pay gaps. We have about seven employers who are reporting pay gaps for Mountain Pacific, so obviously a long way to go on the ethnic aspect. And which groups are seeing the most difference between pay gaps? So I just want to clarify because there's a lot of confusion between pay gaps and pay equity sometimes. So pay gaps exist when group of employees receive significantly different pay. In this case, it's we're measuring gender and ethnicity. And it's usually measured in a number of ways, usually by calculating the median or average pay. So at the moment, the gaps are quite big. And some more than others. For example, for Maori women, the gap between the average Pakham man and a Maori woman is about 19%. And it's even worse for Pacifica women, the gap is about 25%. So put it like this, every week, Pacifica women are taking a 25% pay cut in their pay packets. So that's the reality. Obviously, I want to point out that while modern Pacifica women bear the brunt of the pay gaps, other ethnicities also experience the gaps. But the problem is due to the culture of pay secrecy in New Zealand and pay gap secrecy, there's very limited data on pay gaps for other ethnicities as well as pay gaps for people with disabilities. And how does the registry help reduce the pay gap? main principle is that pay gap reporting works in reducing the gaps. Transparency goes a long way in closing them, really. So in a lot of countries like the UK and Australia, pay gap reporting is actually required for businesses. The issue is that it's not a requirement for any organization in New Zealand. And that's what we're trying to change. So we launched a public pay gap registry in an effort to normalize pay gap reporting and actually encourage businesses to be the leaders in the space, even though there's no legal requirement for for them to do so yet. Reporting pay gaps is really an indicator of trust. It's almost like a fairness index. With a talent war and with a lot of um, employees wanting to work for employers who are trustworthy and transparent and, you know, willing to address um, issues in the workplace. When a company is willing to re- publicly report their gaps, I see we see that as a green flag, essentially. But the pay gap registry also highlights you know, the need for a single methodology to be used. And we're really calling for new legislation to be introduced because there needs to be you know, a single method for the um, reporting to be consistent. It's definitely a solid start with 50 of our larger organizations reporting and some big names in there as well. But we think that having new legislation, which will require um, pay gap reporting, will go a long way in solving the gaps. And so what else needs to be done by employers, the government, individuals to close these gaps? It's a collective effort, right? Employers have a role to play, the private sector most especially. Government has a big role to play, and individuals as well can help close the gaps. So for the government... Again, I want to emphasize we're calling for new legislation for pay gap transparency. The Equal Pay Act, which is turning 50 in October this year, hasn't done its job. It hasn't delivered on its promise. In fact, the Equal Pay Act doesn't even mention anything about ethnicity. So the, the, the lack of intersectionality is really problematic. So a new approach is needed. And for employers, it, it's been great, you know, with the launch of the registry. It's great to see that some organizations are taking the lead on this issue and being courageous enough to publicly report their pay gaps. So we encourage other organizations who haven't yet 
studies, though, to step up and report their pay gaps because only then can they start having an action plan um, to reduce them. And this will really help their employers, really. It's pretty much a no-brainer. And with individuals, one of our sub-campaigns is Just Ask. So there really is great power in starting conversations and asking. Because no one talks about pay, it's viewed as a taboo topic. It's hard to talk about. It's sometimes awkward. Power imbalances in the workplace make it impossible to start discussions about pay or pay negotiations. So we're asking people, especially those with the platform and privilege to do so, to just ask about pay gaps. Ask organizations you encounter daily. For example, your bank, your... Um, your phone provider, so businesses you pay bills to every month, you have a power as a consumer to influence their decision. So you can do this on social media, you can send them an email, you can give them a call. Next time you come into one of their branches, just ask, what is your organization doing about pay gaps? Are you currently reporting your pay gaps on Mind the Gaps Registry? So that'll be the first action, really. Um, have a look at the public pay gap registry on mindthegap.nz and check which organizations are reporting and also which organizations are missing in action. Because the organizations who are not yet reporting, those are the ones that need to be encouraged and pushed. So we're asking individuals to join our campaign. Um, you know, Head to our website sign up to our newsletter to receive updates and also use use your let's use our collective voice to just ask and keep pushing for this change that was nina santos campaign spokesperson for mind the gap talking about the new pay gap registry thursdays i'm in love the tuning forks monthly music discovery night is back for 2022 featuring for march louisa nicklin lips and rip ship. Thursdays I'm in love. Thursdays I'm in love. With Louisa Nicklin, Lips and Rip Ship. Thursday, March 17th. Tickets are just $10. Get yours now from Mosh Ticks. Hakaroma mai, it's Māori words. Because he waka eke noa. Ehara, ehara. You bet. For sure. Absolutely. Okay, so just make sure the light is turned on at night. If the temperature changes by more than three degrees, then call me. I mean, is, is that all good? Ehara, ehara. It's all written down. Nothing to worry about. Good. A tropical fish. They're no joke. Ehara, ehara. You bet. For sure. Absolutely. Māori words. Cut a fewer. Give it a go. Science. <laughs> yep, it's all around us. A rock. That's science. Sandals, that's science too. My wife calling me to tell me to pick up some milk. You'd never know it, but that's science too. But where and what day do we go to to find out about more science? Dear Science, join the Tuesday Wire team as they speak to a rotating roster of boffins and brainiacs chatting about discoveries, controversies and general scientific wonder. Dear Science, every Tuesday Wire on 95BFM. Thanks to MOTAT, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Around, you know, up to eight or 10,000. Shit. The Wire. Until yesterday, the Ukrainian city of Lviv has been a safe place for hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war. Ukraine says that up to 30 Russian missiles have been fired at the Yavoriv military training base near the border with NATO member Poland. Officials say that at least 35 people have been killed and 134 people were critically injured in the attack. 
a few days before this event, I spoke with Victoria Vasiluk, a resident of Lviv, who has been hosting refugees from Kiev. We discussed what it has been like on the ground for internally displaced people in Ukraine, and she gave a personal account of Russia's aggression against her country. Here is that interview. The information about what's happening in Ukraine um, that we're getting here in New Zealand is about what's happening in Kiev, the capital city. Can you tell us a bit about how your city has been impacted by the war? Uh, Thanks God. Bombs are not getting there. They are on the south, on the east, and the north. But here we are. My city actually is taking refugees as much as it's possible. We are like the city that is very close to the border. So usually people are coming here, staying for a night or two nights, and they are moving. So like it's the transit point for for Ukraine to leave the country. Already more than 2 million people left the country. Still, right now, the city is full of refugees. Um, Every theater, every cinema, every place possible is right now like the place for refugees. If there is no mattresses, they are using blankets, just people are sleeping on the floors. Well, volunteers trying to do anything to to host as much people as it's possible. It's hard here, for example, to find a place or an apartment, rent um, some room in hotel. It's impossible here right now. Our major is asking not to rise uh, the the payment for for those things, but still, like even if price is not that high, you cannot find anything free. Here right now, it's really hard to stay for a longer time because this place is very close to the border. So uh, people are, you can be hosted here like for one, two, maximum three nights. Uh, In other cities that are not that close uh, to to the border, you can stay for longer. I'm hosting a girl from um, Kyiv actually, and she's living with me already a week and a half. Right. So do you feel safe where you are right now? I know you said you're very close to the the border. So have you ever considered leaving Ukraine? I feel kind of safe. And sometimes I feel guilty about it. Western Ukraine is pretty safe right now. I don't know why, but self-saving mechanism never worked on me. (laughs) And I'm not considering leaving the country. I'll be staying here as much as it's possible, as long as it's possible, and will be helping as long as I can. I don't understand how people can leave their parents, grandparents here. My granddad is 91 years old. He's not going to leave the country. I don't feel like I can do this. Uh, well, people, other people can, and it's, it's okay. But I don't feel like I can do this. As for now, we will see. People who live in the country, they don't feel safe. Listening to those sirens and ready to leave, there is no enough bomb shelters for everyone in the city. Like to reach the closest one, it's really far away. And it's not that um, good to, you know, when you hear those sirens, uh, it's not that good to go outside either. So either you have, either you're staying in, um, in the apartment, either, either you have 
like your apartment as a safe place or you are getting to your basement but here basement can be cannot be a shelter for you because if your building will be hurt will be destroyed it's impossible for you to get out of there 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 is no um air coming here or well it's like you can be a hostage of that basement so i'm i decided to stay in my apartment uh, we've put every window with a scotch tape and it may be it may sound strange but why is that if there will be an explosion nearby so if the window will be broken to the inside so it will be like in one piece or in in less pieces than than it can be so it can hurt less then i i was blaming myself uh, mm -hmm. for doing nothing like how can you be um, safe and doing nothing but people are feeling the same so there is a lot of volunteers in the hospitals um, in those um, refugee shelters everywhere so um, first what I've done I was I just took my money and I bought everything I could uh, in the supermarket and send it to to army because they they are in lack of multiple things then i decided to uh, to go with my friend to to make those masking nets i don't know what, whether you know what it is about but something that army uses when they are um, trying to defend the country and after that like few times i've been on a railway station feeding people and with sandwiches and hot tea and believe me 75 100 liters of hot tea less than one hour and uh, people can wait in the queue to enter a train for hours for days and it's minus four outside so people are freezing but people as well uh, i mean um, those who live there they are trying their best somebody for example uh, understand that there is there, there are volunteers that they can feed and warm them but they are trying to influence on their mood for example we have a piano on the railway station and everyone who wants can come and play piano for refugees. Well, people are trying to, to do what they can. You talked a little bit about Russia. Has what they're telling people in Russia and what they're telling the world, things like claiming that Ukraine has bombed themselves, things like that, has that been something that's been going on since before the war? Or has it really just become really prevalent now? It was actually before the war, well, speaking about actual actual war it started in 2014 we were living in that like passive war time uh, when they were saying to to their people that those three regions of ukraine that they occupied since 2014 that those three regions speaking the about the crimea island and donetsk luhansk so those th three regions they were saying like those people want to join Russia 
they are speaking Russian language, they want to do this. But what they've been doing, they were putting Russians into those regions to do a riot. Like, we want to be a part of Russia. But meanwhile, citizens were like, but we don't. What's, what's wrong with you, right? But that's kind of uh, propaganda they, they were doing. Uh, what else they are doing? They are hiding from, Russia is hiding from Russians uh, that actually they are sen- sending the soldiers to the war here. That their soldiers are killed. That their soldiers are in captivity. Um, our army is trying to take into captivity people just not to kill them, but still there are lots of losses from from their side as well, but they are not speaking about it. They are not telling this to their relatives, to to the family. They are not speaking about it. They are just trying to hide everything. They are not taking the bodies of their dead soldiers. They don't really care about it. Russians are taking as a hostages 300,000 people in one of the cities, Mariupol. They are starting shooting. Why? For people not to leave. Why they are doing that? They are trying to to give some um, food, water from the side of Russia. So people who are starving, who are thirsty, they can use those things from the Russia side. That's how they can, you know, record this. And you see, they are very help. They are very happy that um, we came to to save them. How come they save us? We need to be saved from them. The major concern is about um, the nuclear power plant that is um, also under Russia right now in Chernobyl. Probably you've heard something about it because uh, in 1986, if I'm not mistaken, it was a catastrophe mm-hmm. when it got exploded and you know all of the radiation and all that stuff. So, and they took that place and, you know, like that's the very sensitive thing because they can manipulate with like, well, we will make some other catastrophe. Recently, they also took uh, some other nuclear plant uh, on the east in Zaporizhia city. It's like, maybe you've heard about it. It's the, the biggest nuclear uh, power plant in the Europe. Mm-hmm. So it would be, well, they were shutting this place. So if it would explode, it would be the catastrophe even worse than um, Chernobyl was. Um, so because it's much more bigger. And But thanks God it never happened. And our army defended that place. And there was a fire already at this place. But... Um, but, you know, like everything is good right now and no radiation. Well, mm-hmm. everything is good right now with that place. The last thing I wanted to ask you is um, with men um, being required to stay in the country to defend the country, do you think that this is the right thing um, to do? Is this something that you agree with? Um, well, lots of people, uh, they are in queues waiting uh, for um, 
waiting to join the army actually territory for the territorial defense meaning so really like not everybody even right now can um, can join because there are too many volunteers mm-hmm. um still the government decided not to um not to allow people like men to leave the country i don't know whether it's right or wrong i don't really know but well from my um from the side of my friends i've heard that only two people were asked to join the army um because uh, because they had so well they were already in the army so they have experience that is why they were asked and um, but there are too many volunteers for that too many volunteers to give blood for example to 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 those people who um who suffered and they need blood transfusion so also i tried to to give some blood but there is a queue for a few days mm-hmm. <laughs> so like well people are trying to help and even though government decided not to allow men to leave the country still they want to join the defense um still they want to join the army so i don't know whether it influenced that much well if they won't do that so maybe more men would leave the country they don't really have a choice so maybe that's their motivation but they are they are doing very great and i'm really really proud of my country and my defenders and army so we had lots of uh, sirens starting the first day and no bomb came here so they are defending really really well and that was Lviv resident Victoria Vasiluk and i just want to make it clear that this happened this interview took place before uh, the recent attacks on the Yavoriv military training base. Of course, um, Victoria, if you're listening to this, all my support to you and um, everybody around you and hope you are safe. And that was um, that interview. If you have any thoughts on any of our pieces today, be sure to give me a text in the studio, 5395. And let's get into our next piece. With the Auckland mayoral election taking place in October, incumbent Phil Goff says he may retire and that he will not be making an official endorsement for a new candidate. However, Unions Auckland have gotten behind Monaco Ward Councillor Ephesor Collins. This is the first time in recent history the organisation has officially endorsed a candidate. I spoke to Unions Auckland spokesperson Sarah Barker. What sets Professor Collins aside from the other candidates? Um, Unions Auckland is is glad that Professor is running for candidate. Um, he's been seen in uh, supporting workers. He's been at local pickets. He was a speaker on the nurses' strike, and he's also been seen to be a supporter of um, Ihumatau, um Save Our Unique Landscape, which was um, supported by Unions Auckland. So yeah. He's our candidate. It's been a while since Unions Auckland has endorsed a mayoral candidate. Is there any special reason why you um, chose Official? Well, yeah, because he's shown up for working people in Auckland, um, despite the fact that he doesn't ever quite have a manifesto yet. 
um, there's a sense that um, he might give some hope for people who may well have been alienated and disempowered from participation in council, that there's a sense that um, community will come before, you know, perhaps the needs of property speculators and big business. Um, so, yeah, we're looking at um, sort of a worker-friendly um, mayor who will in, will be inclusive of, of all communities. And what would an Auckland look like if it was led by FSOR? Again, hopefully a more inclusive um, sort of community where uh, workers will feel like, and, and, and small communities, less wealthy communities, will, I think, feel that they have a say and that they'll be able to participate in the governance, uh, more confidence, and hopefully voter turnout, actually. Similar to um, Chloe Swarbrick's 2020 campaign, do you think FSO is a candidate Aucklanders can get behind? Well, we hope so, yeah. Um, again, that, that he's a candidate that ordinary working people... That's a terrible thing, isn't it? Um, that, that, yeah, working people that might have felt and communities that are less wealthy in the past have felt that they don't really have um, a part or able to participate or are disempowered from um, how council works and having a say in policies. And that, I think, is what we're hoping that EFESOR will bring to the, um, the mayoral campaign is, is that people will feel that they are able to participate. Mm. And um, is it time that Auckland elected a Pacifica mayor? Absolutely. I mean, Auckland, we're the world's biggest Pacifica city, so of course it's time. <laughs> um, and how does Unions Auckland feel about the other mayoral candidates, particularly Leo Malloy? Oh, to be honest, Sam, I don't think that we've even had that discussion. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess we have, um, because, because we wouldn't normally or, we, you know, this is the first time that we've actually endorsed a mayor, although we did um, a few years ago endorse candidates that would support living wage and saving the ports of Auckland. Um, so, yeah, we haven't really discussed the other candidates. Hmm. No, that makes sense. But but it would be it would be unlikely that Unions Auckland would um, would support yeah those candidates. Yeah. Um, and um, I suppose it hasn't been confirmed yet, but um, Phil Goff has I guess hinted at this might be his last um, time as mayor. How would you describe uh, his yeah? Goff's time is made. How would we describe Phil Goff? Yeah. Um, well, he's he he's he's shown up to BFM. So <laughs> he'll get some points for that. Um, but I think he is, in terms of again, Ifisal's presence in um, union campaigns, like actually showing up at a strike, um, actually showing up at pickets. Um, I guess. From the union perspective, um, he's visible. So then, Phil Goff. Yeah. And last question: um, What are some other changes to the city that Unions Auckland would like? Oh, 
Unions Auckland would love to see um, something done around the crazy um, housing situation and the ridiculous just um, um, snowballing of um, housing prices and um, homelessness. Um, yeah, we, we, we really need to do something about the um, affordability, housing affordability crisis because that's exactly what it is. And do you think that's something that um, <clears throat> that the local government needs to properly address? Don't know. It's a tricky one, but why not? Why can't they? Yeah. Do you think we used to, we used to have council provided housing? Um, we used to have um, you know income related rents. We used to have um, um, you know state housing. Um, now we've just got out of control property speculation. Yeah, so do you think um, property developers aren't going to fix the problem we have at the moment? Oh, gosh, no. No, there's going to have to be policies and rules and um, a whole lot of adjustments um, if we're to um, get some sanity around um, uh, affordable housing. That was Unions Auckland spokesperson Sarah Barker on the upcoming Auckland mayoral election and their officially endorsed candidate, Ephesor Collins. So um, what are the symptoms of long COVID? Well, essentially what we're seeing, um, especially sort of soon after your infection, people report, you know, having unrelenting fatigue. That's sort of one of the classical symptoms. Uh, so fatigue, headaches, body aches, and things like that. But I guess one of the things that's so um, sort of uh, curious about uh, you know the long COVID condition is that these symptoms may not show up straight away. So one of the sort of I guess the key messages that we want put out there at the moment, especially uh, with Omicron, is you know that there's there's this widespread feeling that it's just mild and just like a cold, and you'll get over it no problem. Um, and that, that's really worrying because we want people to be aware to look out for, um, you know, the sort of unrelenting fatigue and symptoms like that and to, and to listen to your body and rest through it. So those are sort of, sort of the, the, the top symptoms are fatigue, cognitive dysfunction or, you know, inability to think. Like, that, I think that's probably one of the most um, sort of noticeable uh, features that people talk about because it's so, it, you know, it throws people, right? You know, you, you can no longer string sentences together, you forget your thoughts, and that's really concerning, right? So so the, the, the lack of the ability to sort of think clearly um, is another key feature of, of what's in the spectrum of long COVID. Essentially, there's like over 200 symptoms that all sort of come together, but the top ones definitely are um, and the fatigue, body aches and pains, uh, this inability to um, think the way you once did. Um, and also, I guess the, the other key features are that and where it becomes really noticeable and really needing to be listening to your body is that people, I guess, really see that they have this condition when they try and push through or they sort of think, oh, maybe if I just, you know, go for a walk, it'll push me through this fatigue and that's the worst thing to do. So essentially one of the, um, one of the sort of symptom clusters, if you like, is that when you try and exercise or even just um, overexertion, you know, um, in a 
in a mental capacity too, you then um, uh, hit down with uh, basically even worse fatigue. So essentially we call that post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation. So those things are sort of real hallmarks of long COVID, if you like, where you know you, you might be feeling that fatigue um, because you've come through a viral, uh, an acute viral infection. However, you know, when you sort of try and get back to life um, as you were, it actually kicks you even worse. And so those are the symptoms that we're really trying to sort of um, make people aware of and to not push through. Is there any way to manage symptoms like fatigue or is it quite similar to chronic fatigue syndrome where you just sort of have to rest? Yes, exactly. It is rest. It needs the, there is no treatment for long COVID. And here in New Zealand, our long hauler group have basically relied on the support of each other. So, you know, we're, we're not prepared for a, a wave of long COVID in New Zealand because we, we don't know how to treat this. And it is absolutely far more than fatigue and, and, and how that sort of sounds. It is, it is not, um, you know, that you're just tired. This is a biological mechanism. We know that blood vessels are damaged. We know that the circulatory system is damaged. We know all of these things. There is a load of literature published on this. Um, what we don't know is, you know, is the, the spectrum of long COVID. We don't know, you know, we, we believe that there's going to be categories. So absolutely, there's overlap um, and with myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. Absolutely. So we know other viruses cause post-viral conditions and we know that it's not, you know, just, if you like, a, you know, a, a fatigue bunch of symptoms. This is the... Fatigue is a symptom of the biological trauma that your body has gone through. So that those are the those are the sort of key things. Is that you know we it, it's not just a matter of resting through uh, fatigue. We know that there you know we are hope we we are working around the clock to try and understand the biological mechanisms so that we can roll out treatments because it's not something that's just going to go away. And we know that resting if you are in you know in um, in a severe state is absolutely critical to not exacerbating and making your condition worse. There are many uh, long haulers from the first wave especially, and in fact, after talking to them, would say things like, if I could go back to my to, and have my time again, I would not do anything of exertion for three months. Are there any specific demographics that would be more at risk of long COVID? We really must emphasise that this has got nothing to do with severity. You can have a, a very mild uh, infection, and that's not the mild, like we keep hearing Omicron is mild. We really mean, you know, that you may not have a severe infection. Um, and so, what, you, but you can still go on to get this condition. And that's, and that's what sort of the really, um, uh, the worrying thing about this Omicron is mild messaging that is out there. That, that really only came about because uh, we knew that there were going to be, uh, you know, we saw that there was less fatalities. And, you know, that is a blessing because of how infectious this strain is. But it's, it certainly was never encouraging to those of us that have been working with people with long COVID who have many forms, the severity of their infections were, were widespread. It's really also critical that as soon as, you know, you could see the messaging here in New Zealand where a, a lot of, in the younger demographics, 20s, 30s or younger, heard this messaging that it's mild, and therefore thought they're bulletproof once they're vaccinated. And we just know that that's not sufficient to protect against long COVID. We know that absolutely vaccination's a barrier. 
absolutely. We've seen that um, against uh, protecting against long COVID from Delta. But what we need to really get through is this awareness that we don't know about Omicron. We could, we could tell you that vaccination protects because it protected against Delta, but that is, we don't have that information. We need to wait for the data to accumulate before we know, um, you know if, if, if protection against long COVID has been reduced. How prevalent is long COVID? Omicron hit you know, the, um, other countries three months ago. And in, in some definitions of uh, you know, meeting criteria for long COVID, that can take up to three months. So it's only really now that we're going to start to see um, you know, the, the, the prevalence of long COVID come through from the Omicron waves that have hit, you know, you know, that have been in all the hard hit countries. And so everyone sort of in the space is absolutely hoping that prevalence is going to be much lower. But we just don't have the data. So at this point in our outbreak and knowing that we've now got widespread community transmission, the key message is to have awareness. And you know, don't don't actively think it's a great idea to get Omicron because it's just mild and you'll, you know, you can move on afterwards. It's the the, the message is still very much try and not get this virus. Um, protect yourself, protect others, and prevent, you know, the possibility of, of any long-term impacts from infection. That was Dr. Anna Brooks discussing the effects and issues of long COVID. After a postponement due to COVID-19, Auckland City Council released their property revaluations on the 8th of March. The revaluations saw an increase in property value by 59% in its highest area, and it has been questioned why so many low socioeconomic areas are having such high increases. Auckland City Council's valuation manager, Chloe Woolard, discussed the revaluation system with me today. I began by asking Chloe to give a brief overview of how the revaluation system works. Yes, so all councils are required by law to revalue properties inside their boundaries within a maximum of three years. So we work with quotable value to determine the values, and the valuer general then audits these values to ensure their accuracy. A mass appraisal is the only feasible way to revalue all the properties in the region. So to give you an idea of our scale, this revaluation has been for more than 591,000 properties. Um, the mass appraisal valuations are assessed using a combination of both traditional valuation and statistical techniques. We compare recent sales in an area with the property that we're valuing. Um, and we consider things such as the property type, the location, the land size, zone and floor area, to name a few. It is a point-in-time exercise, so the new values are based on the most likely selling price if the property has sold on the 1st of June 2021. And the property market is dynamic, so it's important that people remember that these valuations are based on market conditions at 1st of June 2021 and are not a reflection of the current market conditions. And there are three components to a rating valuation. So first of all, we've got the capital value or the CV, uh, and that's the most likely selling price had the property been sold on that date of valuation. Uh, then we have the land value or the LV, and that's the most likely selling price had the property been sold as a vacant piece of land on that date of valuation. Um, and that includes development work such as drainage, retaining walls, leveling, uh, but it disregards any buildings or other improvements. Uh, and then we've got the improvement value, which is the um, IV. And that's just solely the difference between the CV and the LV. And it reflects that additional value given to the land by the building and its structures. 
so how much of the revaluation is based off each component of that? How much was sort of based off land value and capital value? So Auckland Council uses a capital value rating model. So we, we rate off capital values, not land values. Um, and the the portion of how it's split between CV and LV, um, that's purely based on market evidence. So it varies um, in different locations and different property types. And so what suburbs are seeing the highest and lowest increase in this revaluation? Uh, the average increase in residential capital values is 33%. Um, so that makes the average value of property $1.4 million. Um, our Tia Great Barrier local board area has experienced the largest CV increase. They've increased um, on average 59%. Uh, the other larger movers are Nangari Otahuhu, Henderson Massey and Maungakiki Tamaki. And they've increased between 41% and 49% average. Uh, and then our lowest CV movers are the Hibiscus Bay area at 25% and Waitamata at 15%. And I've seen sort of a bit of feedback in media about how so some of the highest increase areas are sort of lower socioeconomic groups. Is there any other factor that may affect this or is it just purely the land value? Yeah, so the Auckland Unitary Plan has promoted that intensification that's now allowed for that high-density urban development. So for residential properties, those zoning changes through the Unitary Plan have allowed for thousands more property owners across the city to develop quite densely. Um, And this has meant that there have been higher value increases for property that have that capacity. Um, And we started to see the impacts of the Unitary Plan in 2017 that that effect is much more widespread now um, and those increases have moved out of the city centre, which is why they're now in um, you know, these outer skirt and local board areas. And would you expect similar trends in areas that are going to become high-density areas in the future? So for future revaluations? Yes. Yeah, it, it depends on what the property market does. Uh, our revaluation is based on sales evidence. Um, so if that is the case, then the next revaluation will reflect um, what the property market's responding to. Is the sale market in general in Auckland, is it quite high at the moment, quite low in comparison to other years? So the valuations are based on the 1st of June last year, um, and that increase that we had of 33% um, was slightly lower than the last revaluation. I, I can find those figures for those you'd like them. Um, but the property market, as I said before, is quite dynamic um, and quite complex. So in terms of the current market, um, yeah, we, we would kind of recommend people reach out to local agents or valuers to get some insight into their property. That was Chloe Wallard, Auckland City Council's valuation manager, discussing the revaluation system. I also spoke with Auckland City Councillor Shane Henderson about the annual budget consultation for 2022 and 2023 and how the rate changes are going to contribute to the annual budget. I began by asking Shane to explain the three key issues for the budget. Yes, the first key issue is the climate emergency uh, that we are facing that has been declared by Auckland Council. Um, So last year was New Zealand's hottest since records began a century ago. Um, Seven of the last nine have been among the hottest as well. So key issue one is how we're going to address this climate emergency and whether we can sort of put our money where our mouth is on that. the second issue is our budget pressures. So um, long story short, through COVID, um, Council's public revenue has taken a massive hit. 
Um, and we're going to need to have some difficult conversations with people about how we can deliver the services that they expect uh, while at the same time making any changes that are needed from a budgetary kind of economic sense. So handling tough times, how are we going to do that? And our third issue is waste service standardisation. So in other words, half of our city have one rubbish bin collection system and the other half of the city have a different one. And it's been, you know, super city of nearly 12 years. I think it's about more than time that we um, standardise that collection. So wherever you are in Auckland, you have one rubbish bin collection system um, and a system that works both for your your wallet and also for um, trying to keep waste low as much as we can. So those are, in broad terms, the three big issues. And what are the key developments looking to be made in those areas, specifically, I guess, in the climate issue, because that's a big topic? Yeah, so climate's a huge topic. Um, and also, just as an aside, I've got to say that we have a lot less submissions from people that are 24-year-old and under in our um, budget consultation. So I'm really just telling everyone, particularly young people, if you can feedback on this, because that's the kind of thing that's going to impact us for the rest of our lives. Um, and if you kind of do the sort of age maths on it, uh, the climate emergency is going to really hit even in our lifetime as younger people. So we're trying to get as many people there to submit, but that's just kind of an aside. Um, the climate issue is that we're proposing the funding of $574 million for a targeted rate over the next 10 years. So that's going to be used mainly on transport emissions because that is the big lever that council can pull and looking at frequent bus services that will have catchments all over the city, um, but also looking at ferries, walking and cycling, um, looking at increasing our urban forest canopy because we've got parts of the city with under 10% of forest canopy cover. And that has huge impacts on people's air pollution and health um, and also kind of amenity as well. So it all works together. That's the main spend we're looking at for our climate uh, action funding. But at the same time, we're really open to any ideas that people have that's going to help us reduce our emissions as a city. Are there going to be any major rate changes or anything like that to help contribute to these developments? Yeah, so the climate action targeted rate's about uh, just over a dollar a week um, on the average house. Um, but in terms of the rates as well, we're looking at a proposed general rates increase of 3.5%. Uh, now that's set out in the 10-year budget that we passed last year. So it shouldn't be a surprise to people. It's sort of always been the planned increase um, through Auckland Council. Um, but it also includes our proposal for water quality, targeted rate, natural environment targeted rate. Um, and changes to waste management as well. So um, property rates will go towards services such as collecting rubbish and improving public transport, organising events, maintaining parks, libraries, community facilities, all the cool stuff that council does. But actually people are going to rely on more and more um, as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And is there any indication so far of where most of this money will go to in terms of the key issues or is it up in the air at the moment? Yeah, so um, all the budget stuff's all online. If you go to akhaveyoursay.nz, that will give you more of an idea on where the money is actually being spent, um, and particularly in kind of broad terms. Um, but at the same time, I just want to say that we've also got an open mind that if you've got this idea on what council should be doing more of and what we should be doing less of, that's the kind of stuff we really want to hear. So, yeah, we do have a proposal for, um, for spend, but at the same time, we're really interested in what you have to say and how we can adjust that for you. Um, and so can the public go and give their opinion on the AK Have Your Say website? 
Absolutely. So, AK, have your say.nz. You've got two weeks from now um, to check it in. And so we just want to hear from everyone. We want to hear from a diverse range of authors because that will really help us make the right decisions for every kind of age group, ethnicity, gender, etc. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like I said, a focus on younger Aucklanders would be really fantastic if you can. AK, have your say.nz. Go on there and check it out and uh, let us know how we should make the city better for you. And how much of this public opinion do you take into consideration when deciding on the budget as a whole? Oh, it's absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial. So we all read the submissions that you send in. So rest assured there is nothing going to waste on that front. Um, that's all collated and um, put in front of us as decision makers. And we debate it and we have yarns about it and we see how we can sort of sort of improve our uh, decision-making as a result of your submissions. So, yeah, it's actually really important. It's, it's the primary way that we make our decisions on the budget. And so, yeah, rest assured that whatever you say will be definitely taken into account. That was Auckland City Councillor Shane Henderson discussing the annual budget consultation for 2022 and 2023. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hotaka katoa mō wiki. Nitimihi kia koto katoa i korero maiki o mo tenera. That is a wrap on the Monday Wire. Thanks to everyone who spoke with Charlie, Sam, and myself today. Nina Santos from Mind the Gap, Chloe Wallard, and Shane Henderson from Auckland City Council. Dr. Anna Brooks from the University of Auckland, Monaco Ward Councillor Fesso Collins, Unions Auckland spokesperson Sarah Barker, as well as Victoria, who I spoke to, who is from Lviv in Ukraine. And that is a wrap. Thanks to everyone for listening and to producers Ni Rahoki Timihi Kia Koto. I whakarongo ana, thanks for tuning in, ka hoki mai mātou, a tera wiki, stay tuned for what is coming up next on 95BFM. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.